Welcome to Financially Ever After, where award-winning and nationally recognized financial expert Stacy Francis will bring you savvy tips and words of wisdom on how to secure your financial future before, during, and after divorce. For 30 minutes every other week, you'll hear personal stories from women who have either faced or are currently facing this transition. In addition, you'll also soak up knowledge and inspiration from the industry's top legal, financial, residential, and mental health professionals. And now here's our host, Stacy Francis. Thank you, Steve, and welcome to Financially Ever After, coming to you every other week with really powerful information to support you on your journey through separation or divorce. We bring in both experts who can help guide you, but also women who have been through a divorce journey themselves. And that's actually what we have here for today. Nyla is here. She's going to be sharing her story, a really powerful story. And I think what's really important is just knowing that there's a light on the other side. Um, So let me just give you a little bit of background about Nyla. She's an independent writer, researcher, investor, and social entrepreneur. She entered creative and social entrepreneurship after 14 years in financial services. At her current job, Nyla facilitates salons in the arts to unlock creative leadership and collaboration. Nyla writes and speaks on self-directed leadership for personal and social change. During her financial services career, Nyla built a reputation in institutional sales for the execution of complex cross-asset deals in securitized products and alternatives, becoming a trusted advisor to U.S.-based fixed income investors. Like many of our clients, Nyla has faced the struggles of managing her personal finances, both before, during, and after a messy divorce. And what I have to say, Nyla, when I read that bio, um, you worked in the throes of financial services and were there for quite a few years. So you probably are one of the more um, financially aware and knowledgeable women um, that we've, we've talked to. Do you feel like that's helped you? of where you are today and and also what helped you through your divorce? I think yes and no. Um, Being part of the markets and having a fluency in the language of money had always changed my attitude towards it. It had trained me to look at it as a valuable commodity or a currency. And it also shifted the way I spoke about it, it shifted the way I engaged with it. My relationship with money has always been fairly healthy, meaning I've always viewed it as Um, something that you can empower. I've always viewed it as something that is an important means to an end. Um, Where it, of course, did not prepare me was, uh, and nothing really can prepare you, I think, for a rift or a disruption in your personal life in the matters of um, a relationship that can be or was a key lever uh, to your life. Um, the language of divorce, unfortunately, I think no one can really be prepared for it. No matter, even if you're a lawyer, I think that it's it's difficult to kind of separate the emotions mm-hmm. from uh, the process and the legality of it. I think what's really powerful for you, 
money isn't something that necessarily intimidates you or scares you. Um, what was your first memory of money? I mean, how did, I mean, like, like whatever, however you were raised, um, it, it sounds like it was something that, that money was, was, you know, did you get education about money or did you, were you the one who kind of took it upon yourself? How did you become who you are? around money? It's a great question, Stacey. I come from a very, very middle class family in South India and my father uh, was uh, in a clerical function in actually the equivalent of the Federal Reserve in India. But I would not have necessarily attributed financial savviness to my father. Um, uh, my father, though, was a very ostentatious, I'm sorry, an austere and a conscientious um, household administrator. Uh, both my mom and he were the original intentional minimalist livers of, you know, uh, they were role models for me from that standpoint because they both lived an extraordinarily simple and frugal life. And the, the question of preserving money was a very important value, mm-hmm. which I think I inherited from my parents. But equally, like any middle class family, I think my parents were concerned about making ends meet from the standpoint of securing a robust uh, financial future for their two daughters. Um, one of my earliest memories uh, was actually of my mom worrying, and I don't think she even realizes the effects that it, you know, little stories can have on young children, is my mom worrying, saying that, oh, you know, Appa is Bean's father in my language, has to work really hard because he has two daughters, and, you know, at that time in India, it was customary for the, the girl's family to spend all the money to get their girls married, and my parents both were laboring under the assumption that both my sister and I were going to be dependent on them for getting us married um, and sh- little sound bites like yeah. even and I want to say something really personal uh, which is she would worry about things like sanitary napkins because in India at that time they were so expensive yeah. and my father lived in a, a brought in a very modest um, salary you know I grew up thinking about that as a one I never wanted to be a liability to anyone and two at that time, subconsciously, I must have internalized that, oh, it must be expensive to bring up a, a girl or a daughter. So I was very acutely aware of the implications of what it means to be a woman and the gendered assumptions around being a woman very early on. Mm-hmm. And did that propel you? Very much. To, I mean, because working in the area where you worked as a trader, um, is is not it is not an easy field to be in let alone a woman let alone a woman from india right yeah. um you have to really want to be there and you also have to have a, a thick skin on yeah. a daily basis so it, it sounds like this was something that was really important at the core for you of being financially independent and not being that burden that your mom's worries kind of unfortunately kind of percolated in in your mind. Yeah, and you know, it's interesting. My father, one of the first things that he told me um, when I was probably like just before I had my teen years uh, was that no matter what, I want you to be financially independent. And this was something that he told me and he probably like drove it home to my sister as well. 
Um, so I would never forget. I, I never forgot that because when I graduated from college and I actually came to an all women's schools care and I did, I had a full uh, scholarship and uh, one of my early, early uh, priorities was to enter a profession where I could be debt free for my student loans. They were not a lot because as I said, I had almost a full ride. Uh, so within three to four years, I was technically achieving my first level of financial freedom. So that power of that paycheck and the power of the paycheck going towards securing again your financial foundation, I think I was very early on reinforced as to how powerful that can be. And like any, uh, any point in behavior change, I think when something is so positively reinforcing, you want to continue to work on it and make that system even stronger. As it concerns the trading floor, I think I stumbled upon it, to be honest. Um, I was actually a salesperson. Um, it, was, it was unlike anything that I'd seen. Uh, but then the trading floor, I think, is unlike anything that most people have seen. It doesn't matter <laughs> exactly. that I was from India or not. Um, but I fully embraced the chaos of it because um, ultimately, looking at it almost like an anthropologist, I view it as a movement of human spirits. It was ultimately a composite of different behaviors with different incentives and expectations. And um, as much as it was very intimidating at times, when you break it down to the, the lowest common denominator of people, I think any complex system can is, is better understood. It's better yeah. had at your fingertips. I fought very, I was very ambitious and uh, driven early on, so I never was afraid to ask for opportunity. My career had multiple kind of blips, meaning there were times when I lost sponsorship and mentorship, and there were times when I was assigned to roles and positions that were not, to me, didn't seem very fitting of my skills. So I fought every single part of the way. Um, and I looked and looked for opportunity, uh, which would actually do justice to what I wanted to go after. Um, I think working on the trading floor also taught me that there can be zero-sum games. As mm -hmm. a salesperson, I had to deal with maximizing the best outcome for both my trader was ultimately on my side technically and my client, right? So when you're walking the fine line between trying to get both ends to meet, you are very aware of the consequences of how you uh, negotiate. Mm -hmm. And you do not sustain, you don't want to create zero sum consequences, game consequences consistently for one side, because that means that you're going to fall out of favor with either your trading desk or with your client. This idea of a zero sum game, I think, has stuck with me. And I think that is what came back to me when I was going through that divorce. So that's what I actually wanted to ask you is two things. Number one, were you continuing to be a breadwinner through your divorce, through your, your marriage? And then with this financial background and the zero sum game that you were, you know, I would love to hear too about, did that help you with that negotiation mm -hmm. um, to be able to move forward? But let's talk about your role in the marriage. Yeah. That's um, you know, so were you, were you a breadwinner? Were you paying the bills? Were you not paying the bills? Were you doing the investing? Like what was your, what was your role? It was a complete flip. It was actually what started out as a relationship where we weren't even married. Uh, when we bought our first home together, my ex was actually the administrator, the so-called CFO of the household for about first eight years. And he did. So he dealt with all, everything, everything, everything finance, Paid the bills. With the house. We had our rules in place, meaning you're going to maximize the difference between how much you earn versus how much you spend. We were both very frugal. 
uh, austere almost. And uh, we both also maxed out our 401ks. I mean, we did our own independent investing decisions, but we both were kind of unified in the logic of what we were doing with our money. When we when it came time to buy the first asset, which was a home, we were both in it together. He did have, and honestly, this this there was a flip, meaning his money was getting was going towards paying supporting the household, his income, and my income was going towards the savings pool. So this is kind of the flip of what you probably traditionally see also exactly. in, in, yeah. in other relationships where the woman is the one who is actually like supporting the household and her earnings. And in a way, I look back on it and I wish we had structured it more equitably, meaning it had come out of both our pools of money. So he would have had, he would have built a savings pool himself as well. Um, and I would have also built a savings pool, but I was also contributing to the to the household administration. Post the financial services, uh, I'm sorry, post the financial prices completely flipped, which is that um, he was on his way to becoming an entrepreneur and it was a full-time job. And he was not in, in the process of incubating a startup. It takes multiple years before you actually hit your first stream of income. So well into the financial crisis, we became a single income household, which was terrifying, actually. And um, so you were the only person that was, I was really the, bringing I was income in. the sole breadwinner, so to speak. Um, and that level of engagement with the financial picture also dramatically changed. I became 100% invested in that. And then my ex ended up being not so engaged with it at all, hmm. um, which was kind of a reverse of how it was when he was exactly. a Meaning I was completely disengaged. Yeah. I, I kind of trusted and that he would take over and that's what yeah. happened. I think this is where I think I got this wrong, which is, I should have had a very clear sense of the value attribution between the two of us. As much as one person was not earning income, and I'm going to draw the parallel of this person incubating a startup to women that stay back to taking care of the kids. Yeah. When there's a lack of appreciation of what the partner is doing when they're not bringing in a W-2 or whatever active income, I think that creates a huge fracture. And in my head, I was stuck on the fact that I was asymmetrically pulling in the weight. Now, it was not about the money, actually. I think where the resentment built in was I was also taking care of the, the running of the household. So the fact that I was also the breadwinner and running the household was not sitting right with me. Even though my ex had spent doing exactly that for the first eight years, I somehow couldn't come to terms with it. Um, and that's kind of where in my head, it became, my, my trading personality, the persona shifted, yeah. which is unfortunate because what happened there was I started viewing everything as a zero-sum game which then actually ended up helping us come to a more dispassionate negotiation around divorce finances and settlement. But I think looking at finances and value creation between two spouses as a zero sum game in a relationship, I don't think is very healthy. It divorces you from this idea that you both are equal partners. Yeah. It sounds like in the beginning of your marriage, both of you were, were definitely on the same, like, financial page, same financial yep. wavelength. Um, but then when he stopped earning that income and started, you know, in, incubating his his business was when some of those <clears throat> fractures started to, to show. And it was interesting. I had an experience, um, Nyla, it was probably 14 years ago. And I was at a, a, a session and we were all talking about our goals. And so everybody going around, you know, the, the audience got a moment to, to say what their goal was. And I said, you know what? My goal 
is to out earn my husband. Mm. And Nyla, the lady behind me, after I was done, taps me. And she's probably, I don't know, 40 years older than my than I am. And she's like, honey, honey, you do not want that. If you if you do that, um, you're gonna get divorced. And I mean, here it is 14 years later, and I remember it like it was yesterday. I was just shocked at what? That can't be. But I will tell you, I would be ticked mm-hmm. if I am out earning my my husband and the primary caretaker for the children and managing the household. Um, and knock on wood, our marriage is very 50-50 as far as the, the work, although every once in a while I have to kick him in the butt, I'll be honest, and just remind him just in a really lovely way. Um, but it was, you know, it's interesting hearing you say this because if it's, if the, if the work at home can be more equal, yeah, it sounds like that's a, um, that was the, that was, that's the piece. That, that was, the is piece. that a piece? That was the piece. Um, yeah. goes back to my views now, which is time and a headspace are the single biggest non-replenishable commodities. Um, your time and your headspace and your is, is your sanity is much more valuable than money in yeah. that sense. And I think what was happening was I was watching this kind of leeching of my energy uh, and and, t- and time, doing things that didn't really entirely contribute to happiness. And I was feeling that I wasn't able to uh, maintain the asymmetry of that division of labor. And, you know, memory is a, is a very tricky beast because it doesn't really record back to you all the wonderful things that your partner did. It records back to you all the things that the inequity of the moment, you know. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. But with any relationship, and I'm, I'm single right now, and I think it's a conscious decision to be single because I concluded that the egalitarian division of time and energy allocation, which is also valuable capital between two partners, is, is far from, it's, it's, a, it's a lost art. I think one person inevitably ends up subsidizing the other. Mm-hmm. Um, and forget the money, I'm just talking about time and energy. And I, I see a lot of my women friends, highly successful and intelligent women, and I always look at the way they prioritize their time in terms of the kind of things that they're doing. And I always ask myself this question, is this use of your time unlocking your highest contribution to the world? And I'm not making a judgment here on women spending, staying back home to spend time with the kids. No, I think it's very important. But I'm talking about doing other things that can easily be outsourced. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Shuttling, uh, shuttling kids around between classes and soccer games and like five to eight hours of your time where you're literally just driving. Laundry. Laundry. Dishes. Dishes. Yeah. You know, yeah. and um, I learned that very late on to outsource the things. I mean, you never want to sacrifice your time and headspace for Well, I think for you too, though, outsourcing is the direct opposite of the way you were raised. Yeah. Right? I, I can't imagine your parents being as, you know, thrifty as they were and minimalist that they were outsourcing absolutely everything they possibly could. So I can completely understand why that would be a hard thing to wrap your head around it is doesn't matter that you're making you know blank with a gazillion zeros behind it it's it's fundamentally not the way you were raised i think you bring up a very good point 
I didn't even think about it like that up until now. But I think through the peak of all my earning, um, through my career, when I was earning a lot of money, I would struggle with uh, delegating the most basic of tasks. Um, Not at work, at home. Yeah. The household administration, for some reason, it took forever for my ex to convince me that we needed someone to come and clean the apartment as opposed to us like getting on our floors and scrubbing it. And something like that, something as basic as that, why would you spend eight hours of your valuable weekend yeah. doing that when you could, of course, like, you know, pay someone to do this? Yeah. Uh, you know, something as simple as that, you know? I, I so recognize and and identify with that with, with you on that story. When my husband and I first moved in together about... So almost 20 years ago, um, we had a deal that I would clean the apartment one week, he would clean the apartment the other week. And um, his week, he really cleaned well. <laughs> and Neela, I was like, I, 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 said, I said, this is, I mean, did your mom teach you how to, I mean, you're a great cook, because he's a great cook, his mom taught him how to cook. And he admitted that he had been hiring a cleaner. He's like, I'm not going to use my time to do that. And I'll tell you, I got ticked. I was like, well, that's not really fair that I'm on my hands and knees, like, you know, cleaning the tooth, you know, with the toothbrush, you know, whatever, whatever, um, cleaning the toilet. And so just out of the sheer, like being ticked at him, I, I ended up, you know, hiring a cleaner for my week. But it was really hard for me because it was against everything yeah I mean my Saturdays is my my mom would give me uh, a piece of paper and it wasn't just like a a letter it was a legal pad of paper (laughs) every single line had a different chore and there were times where it was two pages and my brother got one too and that's what we did on our Saturday oh my god and so it sounds like the weekend was a chore it you know it was it's funny I look back and I had a great great um great childhood but we grew all of our own food we heated our house mainly by um by woods we had to chop wood we had three horses um you know there was a lot going on and you know looking back i realized wow but it's interesting i mean i think we grew up very similar and of of outsourcing and getting comfortable with that and knowing that you need to do that for yourself and I also identify with you because I get angry with my husband when I'm bringing in X and if the pendulum leans a little too far towards me and I end up taking you know, the proportionate larger amount for childcare and, and taking care of, of things, um, it becomes a conflict. And, you know, the good news is we've gotten really good about talking about that. And I've learned that he can't read my mind and that I just need to say, you know, what I need from you is this. Yeah. Um, But I think for a lot of breadwinning women, this is this is a big issue. It is. And I think if I can just add to what you're saying, um, equitable distribution legally versus the real equity in a relationship comes back to reciprocity. I mean, I look at it. It's not it's not scientific. Um, each one of us is going to have fracture points. 
for me, it was not necessarily money. I was making more money than I didn't. I, I mean, I could. The uh, it it was not the problem of incubating someone who's who's you know like looking towards building a, a business. But my time and my headspace, and I keep going back to this, was invaluable to me, and it was holding the basis, the keys to my unhappiness. Yeah. And the more I felt like my time and my headspace were not being satiated, and this was also compounded by the fact that I was at that time highly stressed out at work. So I felt colonized on multiple fronts. Um, I could, I was, I felt like I was just kind of losing myself in the process, right? Yeah. And that basis of dissatisfaction, it comes from within. It's not really someone else's problem. That was the tipping point for me. I didn't feel like I was anymore in a reciprocal exchange as it concerned us both being feeling whole and complete mm -hmm. in, in that relationship together. I also want to make one more point going back to the thing about your husband is very good at cleaning. I call this some, some a little bit of the success trap, but it also is like when you're good at something does not necessarily mean that again, that is the re that's what they should be doing. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like it's like when my friends come to me and like, you're good at writing, why don't you like do this PowerPoint for me? And I'm like, I always have to ask myself, is this a good use of my time? I mean, yeah. is this like advancing something that is going to be meaningful or purposeful or carries some kind of utility? Of course, I want to help my friends. But I constantly would also, I had to debate that a lot. You know, yeah. like my husband was extraordinarily handy at home. But to have him, be, I mean, to have him do something because he wanted to do it versus me assuming that, you know, he was good at it, so it's better that he do it. I think it was a bit unfair, you know. Mm -hmm. It was not a good use of his time, perhaps, mm -hmm. you know. You know, I feel like in so many ways, um, everything is crystal clear when you look back. Yeah. Um, but communication, I think that we had very bad communication patterns. Yeah. I almost, we were in therapy for seven to eight years uh, for marriage counseling. Um, the thing that looking back on it, I think couples have to be taught to talk the language of money. In addition to marriage counseling or whatever forms of therapy that couples might go to, like you know how in when Catholics get married, they have the the priest sits them down and gives them like the little oh, yeah. like I, you know I, like we should be. Doing it's a that. whole class. I, I I it's called marriage encounter. Yeah. And Nyla, we, Michael and I went um, and did the whole thing. My my mother um, my mother was just appalled that we were living in sin, not married. <laughs> so you and I have that in common. Oh too. my God! So. <laughs> I, I tried to please her in any way. I'm like, we'll do marriage encounter. We'll, I mean, I, we ended up getting married at the church that she wanted to get married at. I mean, I did everything I could. Um, but I have to say that marriage encounter class, I went and I was like, oh my God, this could be such a waste of time. I got a, a Vente Starbucks to try and help me get through. It was freaking awesome. Yeah. Things that we never thought to talk about talking about and it really helped us whether and it was money and kids and family and and we didn't see to eye to eye on everything but at least we could start that conversation in a supportive way so I so agree with you I think the financial coaching should be part of a marriage curriculum or a partnership yeah curriculum. I agree pre-marriage yes I think pre-marriage there needs, there needs to be right there also needs to be continuing education because yeah. I think behaviors and attitudes are constantly shifting. Someone that was very financially austere could suddenly find themselves eight years down the line, which was me, by the way. As soon as I started earning money, I did the classic slip and slide American dream bullshit, <laughs> which was like, <laughs> you know, my lifestyle was kind of like toe-to-toe -to -toe with how much I was earning. And some of it was just necessarily not yeah. anything that I needed. 
Um, so look at that person that wanted to be debt free and I still was living very much responsibly and within my means and then look at the person 10 years down the line and how bloated that looked, right? So my point really is I think financial coaching, both for the individual and for couples, there needs to be, it should be part of therapy. It should be, I mean, like, I mean, yeah. therapy can be a dirty word in some circles, but I'm a huge um, believer in therapy and talking it out. And I think that it's a tricky conversation to have between couples. Yeah. And that's why I think in a mediator, even if it's a perfectly healthy marriage, I think it's important. And I think, in fact, I would also recommend there be a family level uh, financial coach coaching kind of thing that a family does ever so often, like every two years or so. Yeah. Um, there, you know, it's so interesting. I, um, just flew back from Los Angeles this morning and I spent the last two days, um, it was for work, but I admitted to my husband, I was like, this is really not work. It was work, it was a conference, but what was special about it is that it was with 17 other women mm -hmm. who own their own fee-only independent firms. That we're like, we're like a species that doesn't really exist. Amazing. Um, and one of the things we talked about is the Financial Therapy Association. It's brand new. And two of the women are actually going through the program to mm. get their certification. Um, so we'll make sure that we put that in the show notes. But I have to tell you, Nyla, this is something that actually exists now. And um, we've had four, four clients in the last six months use financial coaches and one of them um, was for one of our clients who's getting married to help he and his fiance kind of build their plan and be able to start that positive communication um, so I you know and, and whether or not you're married I think it's so powerful because money is more than just paper I, money has yeah. so much emotion and fear and anxiety and shame and shame um, but yet enough of it might make you feel secure or maybe not I mean it's kind of like everybody's has a different DNA yeah around this and habits I think that um, money um, and I'm going to give you I'm going to use a terrible word which is I joke about this within myself I also have a lot of friends not friends or people in my circle that I deem as not having good habits around finances. And it, I call these the, 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 the circle where you have the contamination of an STD. Mm -hmm. Because what ends up happening between family and close ones or even those in your circle, the health of the community also depends on the health of the, the behaviors and the habits within a community. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have healthy boundaries, especially, you might suddenly find yourself um, having to be sort of like the lender of last resort, so to speak, for someone that has not planned out things yeah. or um, does not have a certain hygiene, you yeah. know what I mean, and financial hygiene. So part of financial coaching is also about how we need to solidly bring it back in our front view of what that lack of hygiene looks like because most people won't even like if you ask them to do a, um, a clinical analysis of how much financial hygiene they have most people will probably give themselves very high marks but when it comes to push comes to shove i wonder like how many of my friends even have like emergency funds for instance or but what happens if a friend of yours doesn't have an emergency fund guess what you're going to get the call 
you're going to get the call of can I borrow or your family I mean the same thing right my point is so as much as you might be really buttressed and you have like your plan and all of that but as a a well-meaning citizen you want to be supportive of your ecosystem that you're also part of and I constantly am worrying for all the people in my circle that don't have emergency funds Mm -hmm. Um, so that goes back to financial that should also be part of the curriculum is for people to really take a very very honest look at their financial hygiene so the next thing I'd love to hear from you, um, because it's it's a flip flop to what typically happens. You bring the primary earner. Um, now we're splitting the assets, assets that you have earned, but yet they're for the marriage, um, and mentally and legally, you see that on paper, and but. Is it hard? Was it hard for you to say goodbye to that savings that you had put money towards? How did you? I was very conflicted on that. Um, we reached a settlement. We didn't really. We had an amicable divorce, actually. Um, and we both, I think, were very fair. Both sides were very, very courteous, very uh, fair to each other. And we also waited for both of us to come to terms with that departure and that drift. Um, to have the conversation it was we settled for what would have been lesser than technically what a court would have ruled meaning technically the assets should have been split down the middle 50-50 yeah. so the settlement was I mean we reached a settlement where I paid I settled out lesser than that um, was there inequity or not? I actually think about it a lot. Um, but this goes back to two things. Emotionally, I think losing any sum of money was terrifically, uh, it left, uh, it was like ripping a really painful band-aid. Mm-hmm. But I had two situations that happened in 2015. One was I wrote this check for the divorce. But somehow giving that money to my spouse, my ex-spouse, seemed okay. Uh, because I felt like it was a rightful settlement, so to speak. And I also wanted to see him thrive and prosper mm-hmm. from whatever that you know money went towards. And he very much had contributed to the first eight to nine years financially in many ways, you know what I mean? Um, I lost a shit ton of money when I resigned from my the investment bank job that I had a lot. So my net worth in 2015 went down 50%. So you lost your income. And then it was I, just my stock, actually. Yeah, it was so my you stock no that I income. had earned. Like actually, it was earned income that had been that had not vested yet. Walked away from a significant sum of money. Ironically, as much as I was distraught when I wrote that check, I said, if I can withstand this financial loss, I should be able to walk away from this kind of money. And then, ironically, when I was my net worth was down fifty percent, I looked back in two thousand sixteen. I'm still standing. Yeah. You know. So yeah. I mean, it's not the end of the world. Um, I actually didn't look back. Um, and then in two years later, when my when I parted ways with my last employer, I was like, I've lost like so much money in the past. I mean, I still am standing and I think I can do this. It was like the second step towards taking another big risk of really just like going away from a W-2. Um, but the fears that I continue to live with to this day, I don't think they have not anything to do with losing money. Because I've lost a, shirt, a ton of money in the stock market. You you ride the ups and downs of the stock market, mm-hmm. you know. Um, has to go back to an inherited pattern, which probably goes deep down to childhood, which goes back to scarcity value. And 
always operating from the sense of scarcity that it's going to run out. I've had my financial advisor run a million Monte Carlo, Monte Carlo simulations on, you know, slice and dice this in any different way. No one, I think, at this point in time can console me or say that you're going to be just fine. Mm-hmm. It's that it's that little ghost that I'm holding on to from whatever I am trying to that I'm holding on to. It's my own ghost, you know. So that I have to exercise that myself. Yeah, no, but you know, Nyla, I think you bring up a really good point that a lot of women, including myself, identify with that. You can run the Monte Carlo, you can look at the financial plan, and everything looks good. But, and that's the word, but you still don't feel secure. You don't. I feel like a bad lady. Yeah. So it's, so that, that's interesting because I'm, I'm right there, I'm right there with you too of, you know, where does that come from? Like, because I've done the same thing. I, you know, we, we ended up buying a, a sailboat three years ago and I know what a sailboat is. It's just take your wallet and, and pour it in oh. the water. And I modeled in uh, maintenance costs three times what they told us it was going to be because I know that they were lying. Um, and every year I update the plan and we're still doing fabulous. But it's interesting I feel the I feel the need to continue to update it just to make sure um, that we're still on track, and and we are. It's the same thing. And I'll run the worst case scenario. I've I've run like me becoming disabled, a drain on the family. Michael becoming disabled, a drain on the family. Me dying, he dying. I mean, all yeah. I've done them all. And you have these numbers in front of you that look good, but you don't believe them. Yeah, I'll tell you what. The biggest fear I actually have is not about my money running out. It's actually about, I, w- I wonder if I will land in a way where I am going to make money actively again. It has, it, and that, it's, it's, it, I don't even know that it's, it's a lack of confidence. I think it's just solidly wading into the fear of the unknown, mm-hmm. which is, um, I, I, as I said, I quit my job like two years ago, and I've actually not been on a paycheck for two years, and I've really, really slashed and burned my life to meet, um, to meet my future goals and needs and all of that, right? And Nala, I want you to talk about this because I don't want you to to kind of this this was huge. Number one, you yeah. left this very big paycheck, yeah. um, and then this restricted stock you left on the table, and unfortunately, um, because of the vesting schedules, you know, lost it. But what you have done with your lifestyle. And also your view of the role of money is one of the most healthy, um, most healthy attitudes I've ever encountered in my career. Thank you, Stacey. So can you tell us about... It took about, me a while to get there. I mean, and, and what's amazing, and, and I'm telling everyone listening here, um, you know, Nyla loves her life. And... I don't think you feel deprived that you really look at money as a tool to give you experiences and opportunities, not for the Gucci bag, but for opportunities. But we were talking a little bit before and, and you had mentioned that your yearly costs living in the tri-state area here in, in the New York area, which is very, very, very expensive, 
is about $70,000 a year. Less than I think. I mean, that's probably including taxes. I actually was doing the math in my head. Probably like 50 without taxes, without income taxes. Okay, so $50,000 and that includes your housing. I do own a home. Yeah. Um, so that this is this is really important because this is a radical and you, shift. And you also live in a part of um, New Jersey that's a very expensive place. Yeah. I live just just on the other side of Manhattan. Um, first, I want to say this, and I want for those who are listening to your podcast, the single biggest a confident booster for me has been to get a solid handle on how little I can live on. I mean, it, my cost of living is still pretty generous compared to someone that lives on 2,000 euros elsewhere in a small village somewhere, right? I mean, so it's very generous. It's generous even for someone that lives in the Midwest. Okay, um, so $50,000 a year in this part of the country yeah. is not what most people would be thinking of as generous. This is the thing, I think. But we, you, you feel it. Is. I feel it. I mean, I think that, so first one, I mean, I'm a grown woman. <laughs> I'm going to be 40 this year. I have a roommate. I've never had a roommate even during college, okay? I mean, so I view it as a series of trade-offs. But the trade-offs and the process of making these trade-offs have actually learned so much about myself and what really matters to me. So I did what was called a dramatic life audit. For two years that I said I'm not going to have a paycheck, I said, okay, how am I going to be a responsible individual and really deep dive into my life and figure out what is essential and what's not? Again, very classically intentional living and minimalist living and all of that. I said the home is very important. How can I support an, a, a home like this? Well, roommate, okay. Mm -hmm. um, and then my, I want to travel. I travel. I traveled 170 days in 2017. And uh, so you traveled 170 days yeah, for like in 2017. 15, yeah, fifteen thousand dollars. Almost fifteen thousand dollars for that. Yeah, and I did that again. I have to get your travel tips because that's amazing. But I did it because of a choice of saying that the expensive hotel was no longer needed to have a joyful and an enriching experience. Instead, I said, I'm going to lean into sharing time and space with people. So the travel actually taught me how I can share space. <clears throat> people hosted me. I would, strangers hosted me. And that completely opened my eyes to what it means to share your resources. Mm -hmm. So I came back home and I said, each one of these things in my life is an asset and I'm going to share my space. So the roommate became a conscious choice. And now, as I told you the last time we spoke, it's like a cultural exchange for me. I have incredibly awesome, friendly roommates, you know, like I've had two or three already. Um, I don't eat out as much. I really enjoy cooking at home for myself. I still have someone that comes and cleans my apartment once a month. Good for you. I'm giving a high <laughs> five. We just did a high five. Me uh, too. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I do that. And I'm very honest when people ask me to eat out because the New York social routine, when people want to meet you, they're like, can we have a glass of wine or uh, can we go out for lunch or dinner? Uh, it, it was it was like eating humble pie a little bit. But every single time I would go back to them and be like, I would prefer that we actually do something a bit more frugal. And then I started telling people that I'm very intentionally frugal now. Like, my, this is the life that I live. I am sorry if that kind of puts a little crimp on your style. And uh, so my social routines have completely uh, been rewired. Um, and I don't, I haven't shopped in for discretionaries in two years. I have a huge closet with all the stuff that I bought when I was like in finance. 
every one of my piece of clothing that I have in my closet. It's like an old friend now. Because I look at these clothes and I'm like, I appreciate them. So what has happened in the process of not earning money and having this massive life audit, my whole attitude towards money dramatically shifted. I was, I think I was very entitled and very spoiled when I was making all that money uh, because I didn't understand the value of it. I really did not. I think I completely quickly forgot the origins of where I came from the humble roots from which I came from. In my culture, they have this thing about the goddess Lakshmi, which is, a, she's the goddess of wealth. And uh, I work, I mean, I'm not religious. I'm not making this as a religious statement, but I see money as my silent partner in these years. It stands by me as I'm making all these decisions and taking huge risks on myself. And I'm grateful for it every single day. And to which I say, I will empower you to the best of my knowledge and my ability. And you only do that by having a very open dialogue with yourself and what you stand for and what the resources in your life are, you know, how they support you. This includes your network, social capital. It includes you, which is human capital, and it includes financial capital. So I look at the three as sort of this sort of holy triangle of your sense of net worth, mm-hmm. which is very very much you it kind of it, it's very much me kind of i love the new definition of net worth that it's the financial capital which we think about right it's it's the money yeah. but it's also the the social capital it's the generosity of all my friends yeah. all those strangers that hosted me that i will host if they were passing through here yeah it's that infinite sense of connectivity of a network with similar values, with similar intentions, and just the, the absolute generosity of people that give that don't have a lot in their bank account. This mm-hmm. includes all my young millennial friends. Mm-hmm. They live on a fraction of the 50,000 that I talked to you about. They are role models for me. They teach me every single day on what you can live on for so less. They, they want to live lives that they want to live. They don't want to live lives that their grandmother told them that they shouldn't live or their parents exactly. told them that they should live. Yeah. 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 You've had such an amazing journey and you've been so open with it. And I think what's so powerful is that we as women worry that if we if we speak our truth that someone's going to judge us. Yeah. And it's so powerful to know that speak your truth, talk about this stuff. It's the best gift you could give to yourself. It's the best gift you could give to the people you love. Absolutely. Um, Anything else you want to share before we wrap up? Because I cannot believe how fast this has already gone. Um, But, you know, for you... You know, if you were to give one piece of advice to a woman who's maybe thinking about a divorce or going through the process, who um, is that breadwinning woman and is having the challenges with finding space for herself and feeling like a ton of bricks are on her back that she's having to kind of burden everything at work and burden everything at home. Do you have any advice for her? I would say that you are, I would say, tell every woman out there, you are the biggest asset in the picture. It's not your money. It's not your job. It's not even like your network. You, It starts with you. And you have to consciously, one of the most strategic prioritization things that you need to really be grasping every day and dealing with every day is how am I unlocking this most powerful and this most generative of assets, which is you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you we kind of have to take that back. To the we, center we as of that women, story. 
don't think of ourselves as assets. I yeah. mean, we, we, and I'm not, I mean, I have great self-confidence, but when I think of assets, I think of my, my retirement account, um, you know, my home, my earning capability, like I'll think of that, but I don't think of just like my worth, your creative, my, my worth as a woman. Yeah, your creative and generative potential is probably the single biggest thing that holds the keys to both your sense of well-being, your sense of rootedness as an individual, and your sense of contribution. I think when that when that is out of whack or it's not within the frame, so to speak, if you're taking a picture of yourself and you're not in the picture, um, you are sort of doing yourself and your loved ones a huge disservice because I think... I feel at my most creative and my most generative at a time where I'm actually technically not bringing in money. Um, cutting the losses, whether it was a job where I wasn't feeling entirely fulfilled or respected at times, or a relationship which for whatever reason lost its reciprocity, so to speak, which is an important value for me. Cutting those losses ended up helping me go back to unleashing again something so exponential, which is the minute you're in your grounded in your creative and generative self and i know i'm sounding a bit woo woo when i say this but a happy grounded individual uh, with a great sense of uh self-standing so to speak i think i mean we're just exponentially generative mm -hmm. and so i would always tell people uh, women to really put yourself back on the center of the map never ever forget the blue dot in google maps it starts there it starts where you are and always think about finances and well because it's such a boring topic for a lot of people i always tell people you want to be fit right you don't want to tell your husband or your husband or your girlfriend or your boyfriend to go and work out in the gym for you so don't happen. ever try to like outsource your financial engagement or your engagement with your money so i love that so i want to end on that <laughs> because i think that that is such a great key of there are lots of things as women we should outsource we should not be outsourcing our financial management, the information engagement, of the yeah, and even if you're working with an advisor, does not does not let you go off the hook. If anything, you need to be just as engaged. Exactly. That's right. Now I can't thank you enough for being here and bravely sharing your story. And I know that you are changing women's lives, and through you being here, have been heard, and um, it's. It's not easy, but you've been so helpful. So I just want to say a great big thank, thank you. Thank you for uh, holding this amazing, authentically, such a enriching conversation. And I really wish you the best, Stacey, with all the good work that you're doing, with all the lives that you're touching. So that's why I love this work. Um, Financially Ever After will be back in two weeks and um, bringing you a financial expert that can help you with the technical pieces that you might need to know a little bit more about through the divorce process. Um, but feel free to reach out to us, www.francisfinancial.com. A lot of great information um, because you are your best asset. And so make sure that you continue to invest in yourself. And a huge part of that is making sure that you're investing in your financial knowledge. So thank you, and we'll see you in two weeks.